Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you have any questions for our guests, there are many ways you can contact the show. You can post a question on our wall on Facebook, Skype us, send us a tweet on Twitter to at The Organic View, or you can contact me directly at June Stoyer. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. On is independent scholar. Marilyn Roach will talk about her new book, Six Women of Salem. For those of you that are fascinated with history, this is one book that you will definitely love. So I would like to welcome to the show, Marilyn Roach. Good afternoon, Marilyn, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Marilyn, can you share a little bit about yourself and also talk about some of the other books that you've written? Oh, well, I went to art school because I wanted to be an illustrator, books always being in the background there. I haunted the public library as a kid and still do, actually. Starting out with picture books, I wrote longer and longer prose, and my other obsession of history got into the topics that I worked on, and finally... I decided to go up to Salem really for the first time, not just being driven through it, but going to it and seeing it. Back during the bicentennial of the Revolution when they published a guidebook to the town. And I did, and I saw a couple of historical places and got hooked on the subject, which I I was aware of. I'd read books and every so often the topic would be interesting. But once I went up there and saw the place for myself, I decided I'd really look into it and thinking, well, maybe there's a book in this, but it took 27 years to do that book. And meanwhile, new information keeps turning up. So besides other historical things that interest me, this this thing has, has really taken hold on my attention. You did such a magnificent job with the Six Women of Salem. It is such a comprehensive book. There's so many details that are not mentioned in the usual conversation when it comes to any type of discussion about Salem, much less the witch trials. Most people tend to think that what happened in Salem is about these spooky witches, this Mm -hmm. and that, and they don't realize that this is a prime example of the ability for human beings to inflict cruelty on one another based upon greed or jealousy. Actually, there are a number of different factors that have gone into the accusations Mm -hmm. as well as the entire period of time in which all these heinous murders were committed. That's basically how I view it. Uh Well, yeah, these are real people, not stereotypical fictional characters, so that their experiences were different and they came from, the six that I chose came from different walks of life and, and had different outcomes of this this horrible problem yeah they're real people and so are their accusers three of them are accusers but one does nothing but accuse Uh, there's different motives as you say greed i suppose fear certainly i imagine a number of people thought like ann putnam senior thought that she was protecting her family from dark uh, evil forces and i think some of them did convince themselves that this is what it was but after things got so out of hand, 
it was dangerous to change your mind and to change your story because it made you look really bad. And also in the case of Mary Warren, the hired girl who thought she was afflicted and then thought she was bewitched and then changed her story when she said she realized that it was a delusion. Then she was accused of collaborating with the devil and the witches and that she had done that just so they'd stop spectrally hurting her. And uh, at that point, she didn't know what to think. And every time she changed her story, it, it, it just got worse for her. But there's a lot of people involved in this, so that there are differing motives depending on what the backstory is, some of which is known, and some of which will never be known because it didn't get written down. But you can see neighborhood tensions in in who accuses whom. Since this is focused on religion and all sorts of accusations about the devil, can you briefly share with our audience what the main religions that were practiced back then were? Well, in this particular culture, it was uh, Protestant Christianity and a Puritan version of it. The fears and beliefs about what supposed witches could and could not do is pretty much typical of, of European Western culture, though. And even this one outsider in this uh, Tituba, the Indian woman, but even her culture of, from the Caribbean thought that it was possible that people could perform evil magic and hurt others magically with the specters or, or however. That the devil would be behind it was accepted as, well, the source of evilness, of course, it was assumed that people could fall into being a witch by little magical things that they might think didn't do any harm. And, and like like the, the drug trade, uh, it, it, it starts out small and then goes into the hard stuff. Then they're in the devil's clutches, for example. But uh, while some of the trial papers, the, the technical definition of what they supposedly had done was to collaborate with the devil. What the supposed evidence was is the harm they're afflicting on their assumed victims. I'm trying to qualify my remarks here by hurting them spectrally so that they then experience convulsions where other people can see that going on, which was an unusual part for New England witch trials, the part about people twitching and falling down and convulsing. Uh, was not typical before that. It, it's apparently psychologically catching if people start doing it. And there are contemporary cases where people, usually young girls, uh, fall into situations like that, except they don't accuse people of witchcraft now. But once that started, it uh, was self-perpetuating, I think. And those who maybe had second thoughts about it, like Mary Warren, didn't dare say otherwise because then people would assume they were lying, and some of them, I believe, did lie. But I think some convinced themselves of it, at least for a time, that that's what was happening, because it was logical in that culture and in other cultures that, that it was possible to happen. What were some of the common illnesses and afflictions back then? Do you think people suffered from diseases such as dyslexia, epilepsy, and other types of diseases mm -hmm. that would result in a bodily reaction, such as with epilepsy, mm -hmm. it's common for people to have seizures. Yes. Um, 
Well, a couple of the descriptions in contemporary works on the subject said that what the afflicted girls went through was beyond epilepsy. They were aware of it, at least the doctors were and the educated people were. You know, you want to be a fly on the wall, more or less, to see what, what's the difference in what they see or think they see. But a couple of people stated at the time that it was different than epilepsy or worse than, but of course, if the devil's in it, then it's worse, obviously, in their opinion. So uh, it's hard to say. And of course, a high fever can cause seizures, and there were fevers, but there were fevers now and then because there's illnesses going around, especially in hot weather. And let's see, hyperventilation has been put forward as a possible symptom that might have been happening. If someone gets overexcited, they don't breathe properly, and it can cause a certain amount of convulsions uh, or passing out or thinking you see something that's not there. And if you think that then this is possibly from witches or specters of the devil, it can sort of frighten them into thinking that that proves what they feared and then they get more excited and have more symptoms. So it's not what they think it is, but it's a self-perpetuating problem. Many of the illnesses and afflictions that people complained about, such as the hallucinations, so on and so forth, could easily be explained by a fever, even perhaps the ingestion of some of the local plants. They could have had hallucinations as almost a reaction due to the side effects of ingesting. I don't know what's native to that area, but that's never really been addressed by the medical community. But I do think that that is a huge possibility that hasn't really been explored. Some of the, this was an earlier case, not, not in mm. 1692, but somebody's cattle acted crazy and ran into the sea and drowned. But they had been presumably eating jimson weed, which is a hallucinogenic. Uh, maybe something got into somebody's porridge. This was pretty wide, this was wide, uh, not terribly widespread, but there were a number of people who had this problem or whatever it was. I tend to think it was kind of psychologically catching. The theory about the ergot in the rye, I don't agree with. It's often put forward. That theory was rebutted in the next issue of the scientific magazine that it was in by other, uh, some doctors or scientists, who pointed out that the symptoms of ergot poisoning is convulsions if the person has a vitamin A deficiency. And that in their opinion, the general food available there at that time would not have given a vitamin A deficiency. They'd have had enough of it, in which case the symptoms is gangrene, and nobody complained about that. So I think it was more psychological. But, you know, if somebody got some bad something, there were illnesses of people who, they're not having convulsions. They're ill from something else, so they actually die. Some of the people who thought they were bewitched actually did die of something else. At that point, it was, if it wasn't smallpox, maybe it was the devil. <laughs> exactly. And there was smallpox around, too, so they, they had reason to be worried about things they couldn't cure. Can we talk about the life of a slave? You talk about Chichaba and the whole journey to America. Can you just share a little bit about what that whole journey was like and how she was treated once she got here? 
Well, I based that backstory before 1692 on Elaine Breslau's uh, biography of of Tituba. She did find in the records of Barbados where Samuel Paris presumably bought her. He had been a merchant there earlier. I found a, a similar name in a list of slaves belonging to a certain plantation and also found a record of a slaving expedition on what is part of Venezuela now where some of the indigenous people were captured and it works out that it might be the same person. I mean, there's a lot of ifs in this, but it, might, it you know, it might work out and it does make a good logical story. So, so I, I qualify my remarks. There's a lot of footnotes in the book in the back of it. But, uh, yes, uh, this individual was captured as a child and taken to Barbados and may or may not have been a field worker, but presumably in a house doing domestic work. And, uh, well, you didn't own yourself. If you were a field worker, there was more time to yourself after work is done where you could talk to others in the same situation and they had a certain amount of shared culture. Uh, we don't know what she did there. She she was presumably from Barbados because her later owner had business dealings there. But she just refers to her mistress in her own country or her uh, at, at one point, so we know she was owned by somebody else earlier. Uh, it, uh, let's see. In New England, there were slaves in people's families. Uh, she is always referred to as an Indian. Other people are referred to as Negro or black and came from Africa. They're, they work in the fields or they work in people's houses. There aren't huge numbers working large-scale agricultural concerns because that's not what the economy supports. Um, let's see. She presumably worked around the house like other like a housewife that sort of job i mean you you made your own beer or cider or, or you baked your own bread or you in a town you could get it from a a baker which would be selling bread professionally but there was a lot of work just in keeping the house so another pair of hands whether a hired girl or an owned person a slave uh would be very helpful to a housewife um, washing, cooking, cleaning, putting up food for the winter, preserves, brewing. Uh, when the pig got slaughtered, you, you preserved the meat and salt. I mean, it was never ending. Uh, how people were treated, uh, certainly you were obviously of a lower stature. The, uh, you can tell from the remaining records that they attend the two slaves in Paris's household attended family prayers with the rest of the family, the wife and children. Uh, but uh, there'd be other if it weren't for the witch trials in that disaster, they would have been totally invisible. It would seem uh, pe uh, people who are in that situation as slaves show up in court records when something goes wrong, or when the owner dies and they are inventoried with the rest of the possession. Now, you made a couple of comments in the book that I thought were really interesting. And it's basically about the little bit of power the slaves did possess mm. 
And that power was basically, it, it occurred when the slaves were in charge of their master's children. Ah, yes. Now that is very, very interesting when you look at it from that perspective, because even though a slave had basically no rights and had to do as he or she was told, it was interesting that the church would permit the slaves to marry in the church, mm -hmm. which is kind of bizarre because if you don't respect a human being, why would you afford them the privilege of being married in a church? Or so they would like to think. But more importantly, when the masters were away, the slaves were in charge of the children mm -hmm. and basically could corrupt them in any way, shape, or form that they chose. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Uh, let's see. Well, um, of course, when the masters came home, they had to deal with that. And, uh, well, they could threaten them, I suppose. Uh, there were other cases uh, in Boston where uh, a slave put poison in the kids' food and the children died. Although this was found out and then they were executed for murder. Yeah, but they're still in a real un uncertain position if they do anything to the ch children but they could probably threaten them with this or that and they might be tempted to it's the only way to take revenge on the family it's hard to know what Tichuba's relationship was with the children um, they may have liked her they may have resented her she maybe had to dis she would certainly have to discipline them now and then on the other hand she has no authority, but she has to exert a certain amount of authority to keep children polite. Uh, it's a, it's an, a no-win situation. Uh, actually, slaves could legally sue a master, and a few did, but it was difficult. It would You'd have to have somebody, on the a free person on the outside speaking for you or helping with that. Theoretically, they they could do that. In actuality, it would be very difficult to do that. I thought it was interesting also that domestics and other servants mm -hmm. were treated pretty much the same as slaves, even though they did possess freedom. Well, they could be hit, if that's what you mean. Uh, they could be hit. They could endure all sorts of pain and whatever type of punishment their masters, if you will, mm -hmm. chose to give them. Well, yeah, the euphemism was correction. He offered them, he offered his servant correction, meaning he clouted him. <laughs> yeah, the, and John Proctor, who eventually is hanged for supposed witchcraft, he, uh, beat his servant, Mercy uh, Mary Warren, which brought her back to uh, her conscious self at one point and stopped the convulsions, which brought her to her senses, he hit her. And this was acceptable. You could you spank your kids, you could hit you could give them a few whippings if, if they were really disobedient. And they could do that to servants. It was, however, illegal to hit your wife. And in England at the time they did argue in court how big a stick was legal to hit your wife. Over here you weren't supposed to do it, not that it didn't happen now and then, as with Bridget Bishop, who hit her husband back. Now, it's kind of interesting in the case of Mary Warren. Mary Warren really didn't have any options. Mm. Mary Warren, to a certain degree, she was dealing with a family, the Proctors, mm. that had endured several 
mothers, if you will, mm-hmm. because John Proctor lost the previous two wives yes. and married Elizabeth, who was not necessarily fully embraced by his elder children. No, she doesn't seem to have been. And it was quite peculiar that Mary Warren at one point envisioned this whole future for herself as either the wife of one of his sons or possibly the replacement for Elizabeth after she was hung for witchcraft thanks to her accusation. She might have thought that. I'm I'm theorizing when I say that, but some of her descriptions of her spectral visions sound as if it could mean that. It makes it very clear all the different situations for each of these women that it didn't matter if you were from a wealthy family or you were dirt poor. Mm -hmm. The options were very limited. You went into a great amount of detail about how even if you were from a wealthy family, you still basically had to strategize as far as your future and the future of your children. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about some of the more successful women and how they thought that their futures were secure when the reality was nobody had a secure future? No, men or women, but uh, yes, uh, a woman's future depended on who she married pretty much. Uh, Well, Ann Putnam Sr. married up-and-coming Thomas Putnam. Ann Carr marries Thomas Putnam He's got land, he's going to, presumably going to inherit more, he's doing well, and and in, as time goes on, life is harder, and he doesn't inherit everything he thinks he's going to inherit. And the richest woman in Salem is Mary English, Mary Hollingworth, when she was born. They were the rich, uh, Mary and Philip English were the richest couple in Salem. Her mother had been a businesswoman before her, which uh, gave an example of, you know, what women could could do if they had the opportunity, which would be an example to Mary, of course. Uh, let's see, Mary's parents. Her father is a sea captain, and uh, he's away at sea a lot, so her mother has to take care of things while he's away, which was common enough among seafaring families in along the coast, Salem, Boston. Women could take the family business to court if necessary. It's just you don't hear about it as much. Her father is lost at sea, presumably drowned, because they never did find out what happened to him. So while he's away for seven years until you're declared dead, his wife is taking care of things at home. She's not running a shipping business or anything, but she has all of his debts to deal with. And she's, yeah, and she still has to pay the taxes, taxes yeah. even though her husband – yeah, and that's something that is very important because it really shows how creative women had to be, how mm-hmm. businesslike women had to be, and, and more importantly, they really had to manage the household, not as far as putting food on the table, just but, but also – as far as every everything to do with that piece of land, oh, yeah. whether it was payment to the landlord or if they owned the land, the taxes that were due, right. and anything else that was involved. Yes, and, and with um, Mary English's mother, she was given license by the town to open a tavern, and she ran that and apparently brewed her own beer and sold it to uh, ships that were 
stocking to go out on long voyages. She'd provide the beer for some, and and she had her husband's debts, which was not just personal ones, but what the the cost of fitting out a ship, which was considerable. And uh, she paid it off. And she there's a statement in a I guess it's a mortgage. She writes that uh, she paid it off with her money. She didn't dip into his stuff that he left behind. She wanted people to know that she did this on her own. And when she dies, her estate is quite large. Uh, I forget the uh, amount of money, but it was a, it was more than what her husband left. So she managed that by herself. And Mary had that as an example. And Mary still owns property, or actually, of course, Philip legally owns it if, if they're married. But it's she owned property before she was married that was rental property, and I assume she continued to manage it. So now, if you were if you were accused of being a witch, mm-hmm. what happened to your property? Did that automatically go to the state, or could someone buy it, or did it go to your neighbor? No, the family what happened? kept it. Uh, actually, that that it doesn't go to the accuser. Um, the um, if a woman owns, well. If a married woman technically doesn't own it, her husband owns it. So anything she owns stays in the family. If a woman is a widow, then she does own it, but the, so that somebody might covet it from her. But land was not taken. It was personal property that was confiscated to pay bills, jail bills. I mean, you had to pay room and board and the fines and fees and so forth. Uh, the men who were hanged, owning their own property, and the widows, it stayed with the family. Uh, For example, George Jacobs Sr., he's hanged, and eventually his son inherits. Now, there's problems between the, the heirs, as with John Proctor's family. The heirs didn't want Elizabeth inheriting anything. But that farm stayed in the family and with George Jacobs farm this isn't in the book but that stayed in that family for many generations until the great depression when the banks foreclosed on it after the last Jacobs to farm it was too old to work it and it was essentially abandoned so being a accused of witchcraft didn't lose the farm thank you how much education did both men and women receive back then? And you went into detail about the amount of education that the majority of the afflicted, so to speak, had received. Mm. This, I think, when you look back from a legal perspective, it almost made it impossible for anything that they had to say to possibly be even considered to be true because of that very reason. Although back then, with the whole hysteria going on and just the the whole, what I consider to be an epidemic that afflicted the town, obviously the, the powers that be were not going to use any type of reason when these accusations were made. Well, they thought they knew what was going on and they were slow to change their minds. Actually, well, it's not just Salem. It's, it's the surrounding area. It's a, kind of an eastern Massachusetts problem. Uh, education. Well, the state, uh, Massachusetts early on required, it wasn't always fulfilled, required towns to hire 
a schoolmaster. Towns of so many families would have to provide enough taxes to support a school teacher, which was for the boys mainly. But before that, children, girls and boys, were expected really to learn how to read. They didn't necessarily learn how to write. I was surprised to learn that these two skills were taught separately, which explains why even on the eve of the American Revolution, there was a writing school in Boston, meaning they'd already learned how to read, then you'd go on to the next step. Uh, they wanted the children to be able to read the Bible. And you couldn't do that if you were illiterate. So people could read, whether they made a habit of it or not, uh, that would depend on the individual and the individual families. Uh, Some could also write. Some people could sign their name but weren't in the habit of writing anything else. And some people who could write, apparently, would use a, a symbol for their name, even if they could write something else. <laughs> Ordinary farmers could need, and, and craftsmen needed a certain amount of literacy to keep track of things, but not as much as, as later on, apparently. So I think most of them could read. Uh, maybe some of the poorer never got around to teaching their kids that. Uh, uh, Dame school is what the youngest kids would uh, be sent to, or would, and that would be a woman teaching young children by means of a, a horn book. It's a little plaque with a, the alphabet on it. And uh, then they would go on to something more, or they wouldn't. But uh, if if a boy could go to a grammar school, that means Latin grammar, and there was a school in Salem. It shared the same building that the courthouse was in. Uh, then they would learn Latin, and some of them might go on to Harvard University. It's not called Harvard yet. It's just the college. And uh, some of them it was would be ministers who needed a, much more of an education, Latin, Greek, and other commentary. And uh, science was creeping into the curriculum in Harvard, too, I mean. Uh, and and some of the Latin and Greek books that they were reading were were not Christian ones. This is Virgil and Homer. So they some people had more of a, a wide education than others. It was interesting that Mary English's mother's uh, probate listed a dictionary, which was unusual anywhere at that time, but she owned one. It's interesting that many of the accusers mm-hmm. would talk about how the witches would request that they sign the devil's book. Right. And this was just such a common thing, but yet they didn't even know how to write. Oh, so you could, it's almost you could do an X. That would count. The fact that the accusers could read but could not write for the most part almost makes you wonder if they fantasize about what it was really like to write and inspired their accusations that the accused had written in the devil's book. I hadn't thought of it that way. When they were accusing people of taking different shapes and writing in the devil's book, Hmm. that they were using their imagination to basically guide them. Hmm. Some of them did learn how to read, but... Hardly any of them learned how to write. So I think that that might have been a, a very big factor in their ability to really spin the story out of control. That's very interesting. 
I, I, I'm not sure how many could uh, mm. comparison, yeah. Now, one person who could read and write was the good Reverend Harris. Harris, yes. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about what his financial arrangement was and why he was not pleased with that arrangement? He negotiates with Salem Village, which is the parish that he's in, for the use of the uh, ministry house, the, the parsonage, and so much in salary. I think it's 40 pounds. And from year to year, that this goes along. And when he is ordained as their permanent minister, they think it doesn't work out that way. One faction in town says, we'll give him the house to keep, which in some places this was done because supposedly this was an arrangement that would last for the rest of his life. And he sought out this position. This wasn't a job opportunity where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, come work for the town of Salem, become their spiritual leader, and you can have these privileges as part of the job. He sought this out because he knew that, okay, there's a house, you know, his life would be established and his needs would be met. Well, he needed to provide for his family. Well, let's see, what they negotiated, like 40 pounds, wasn't huge, but it was respectable. And um, and then they cut it and back. And they cut and it that's back, where, especially the and, firewood. Uh, does this include firewood? Is firewood extra, or do we take 20 pounds off? And they, They're paying him mostly in produce, by the way. Yeah, and that, and that was a big deal because he couldn't provide heat for his family and they would have froze to death. And it was a cold winter. And if you didn't own a woodlot, you didn't go cutting down somebody else's trees. So it was a concern. Uh, apparently those who wished they hadn't hired him stopped paying. And those who still supported him would bring over a cord of wood maybe or a load of turnips or whatever. Now, isn't it true that one of the accused were part of that party that decided to cut back on his own needs. Uh, Yes, Rebecca Nurse's husband, Francis Nurse, was on the committee to collect the taxes to support the minister. They weren't doing it. They were wishing that somebody else had come. Uh, There had been three or four other ministers before Paris who then didn't stay on permanently or try try to make it permanent. So it was not a town given to agreement easily. No, it seems as though there were so many opportunities for your own type of personal justice. If someone wronged you, Mm -hmm. you could basically use the whole witchcraft agenda, if you will, as a method to pay back the people who did wrong to you whether it was actually wrong or you just felt that way. That was quite interesting. And I think more people that read Six Women of Salem, as well as any of the other books that you've written, they could get a better understanding what exactly happened during this period of time and just how crazy things were. One of the things... Oh, yeah, yeah. One of the things that I just wanted to briefly talk about were something that you went into detail about, which is called the witch cake. I thought this was really interesting because you're talking about a bunch of people that are so focused on the devil, so focused on religion. And so what do they do? They create what's called a witch cake to alleviate the symptoms of being a witch. Could you share with our audience what the witch cakes consisted of? Oh, yeah. Well, even though they considered themselves good 
Puritan Protestant Christians. There was a lot of folk magic that was just so common in the English European culture that they hadn't given it up and they thought it was still okay, although the ministers said this was too dangerous. The witch cake is based on the idea of sympathetic magic. If someone is casting evil at you, well, spectrally, some of there's a, a spectral connection between that person and the victim. So that if you can hurt a part of the victim, which in this case is something you remove from them, like a little hair, or in this case, the urine of the sick girls, if you could hurt that, then it would send the pain back to the person who's causing it spectrally. And uh, when they react to it, then you know who it is. So the neighbor who's a member of the church, an English-descended, English culture, Puritan woman, Mary Sibley, comes over to the parsonage one day when Paris and his wife are out and suggests to Tichiba and her, her husband, John Indian, that they should make a witch cake and that will give some relief to the girls who are twitching around and having problems. But no one's meant... And how did that work? <laughs> well, you take take some urine from the afflicted and you mix it with rye meal, which I don't think was infected with the ergot, but it's cheap. It's cheaper than good flour. You make a little cake out of that, a patty thing, and cook it in the ashes of the hearth, and then feed it to the dog. Nice. And I guess if the dog chews it, this hurts the witch who is spectrally connected to it through the ingredient. Any documentation of success? <laughs> No, uh, nobody had uh, pains as if they were being bitten by a dog, but uh, the girls uh, reacted as if this, it proved something. Uh, prior to this, the local doctor, the medical doctor, had given his opinion that uh, the other doctors in the in the neighborhood had not been able to find a cause for whatever ailed the girls at this point, and it hasn't spread yet. He said they must be in under an evil hand, which means they're bewitched. With that in the back of their mind, then the neighbor comes over, suggests the witch cake, which is an anti-witch bewitchment cake, in effect. Then they really get scared, and their symptoms escalate, and they start naming names, presumably the names of people that the adults have been wondering about. Could it possibly be this or that person? Tichiba is one of them whether the girl accused Tichuba, whether she was calling Tichuba, or whether somebody suggested it and she she agrees to it, uh, it, it starts there. So Tichuba and two other women are accused at the end of February and then 1st of March the hearings begin and then it spirals out of control once people think that there are other supposed witches out there. Marilyn, this has been such a great opportunity to learn so many details about the true story of what went on in Salem. Unfortunately, so many details have been twisted for the sake of Hollywood entertainment. This was such a low period of time in American history and one that I sincerely hope we learn from and do not repeat. The research you have done is magnificent and very comprehensive. I love reading about history and truly enjoyed reading Six Women of Salem. Folks, if you are a history buff, you will love Marilyn's book. And check out the link on theorganicview.com, which will have some pictures and also information about this book and Marilyn's other book. So look for the article on the site. 
Marilyn, thank you for coming on the show today to share your knowledge with my audience. It's just fabulous. Thank you, thank you so much for your time. Could you just share some of your other books once again oh, with our audience yeah. and if you have a website? Uh, I don't at the moment. Uh, the, one, the book that took 27 years to get off the ground is uh, The Salem Witch Trials, A Day-by-Day Chronicle of a Community Under Siege. That's still in print, I'm glad to say. And I worked as a associate editor's on records of the Salem witch hunt, Bernard Rosenthal, editor-in-chief, that brought together all the known legal papers that had to do with the trials in a new edition, which the people who actually worked on the transcriptions found in minute details, little little, little nuggets of facts that uh, helped advance the story. I worked on the glossary of names in the back. Thank Those you. Are the two main ones. I really look forward to reading your other books. I thoroughly enjoyed Six Women of Salem. And do you have anything planned for the future? I'm going up forward in time to the American Revolution. We'll see what works out with that. <laughs> Alrighty, folks, thank you for tuning in. Please pick up a copy of Six Women of Salem. You will really love all the details that most people just won't find out from Hollywood or even some of the folklore that has been circulating for a very long time. So if you are a history buff, you'll really enjoy Marilyn's work. Thank you for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon, everyone.